The Garden Museum, housed in the former Church of St. Mary at Lambeth in London, is Britain's only museum of the art, history and design of gardens. The church, adjacent to Lambeth Palace on the south bank of the River Thames, was deconsecrated in 1972 and scheduled for demolition. Fortunately, the building was saved when a tomb belonging to two 17th-century royal gardeners and plant hunters John Tredescant the Elder, 1570-1638, and the Younger, 1608-62 was discovered in the churchyard. John and Rosemary Nicholson who found the tomb were inspired to turn the building into the world's first museum dedicated to gardening. The main section of the museum is on the first floor, which has been added to the main body of the church. The collection includes a wealth of information about the history of gardening and displays a collection of tools, art and other ephemera. The Garden Museum What constitutes a garden? Areas of land can be private, public, designed or wild, however, what makes it a garden is the activity within it. Gardens are usually maintained, cultivated or used for public and private enjoyment and recreation. The history of gardens begins in 1600, towards the end of Elizabeth I's reign, when John Trudescant, the first great gardener, began his career, however, it was only the wealthy that could afford such privileges. It was during the 18th and 19th century when the general public began enjoying their private gardens. Whilst farming has been a necessity throughout time, gardening for pleasure has increased rapidly over the last few centuries. Flower shows began emerging in the north, the first taking place in Norwich in 1843, the show was dedicated to chrysanthemums. Three years later, the craze had spread across the rest of Britain. Prizes were awarded at flower shows for various achievements. Gardeners competed for best flowers, biggest vegetables, neatest gardens and so forth. To begin with, these were held in small communities but today, some competitions have reached a national scale. Amateur Gardening Magazine, 1899 The Woolworth Gardener, 1950s Advice for gardeners began being printed and distributed as early as 1826 when the first gardening magazine, The Gardener's Magazine, was established. Initially, this was targeted at the gardeners of country estates but it soon found a more general readership. Taking advantage of this, the Amateur Gardening Magazine was founded in 1884, providing advice about plants, soil and seasons. The magazine is still published today. Other companies soon jumped on the bandwagon, producing magazines such as the Garden Home Journal, 1907, Understanding Gardening, 1960s, and the Woolworth Gardener, 1950s. The latter was published by Woolworths, then Britain's biggest seller of seeds and bulbs. It included advice from many professional gardeners and boasted that it was a guide to successful gardening for all. From the mid to late 20th century, gardening advice moved to televisions with programs such as Gardener's World in 1969. The show was presented by Percy Thrower, 1913-88 who had been professionally gardening since the age of 18. Thrower was known for his early work at Windsor Castle, promoting the Dig for Victory campaign during the Second World War, and designing the Blue Peter Garden. In 1974, Thrower created the Master Gardener series, providing simple guides about sowing seeds and other gardening tips. Percy Thrower died in 1988, however, his legacy lives on in the continuation of Gardener's World and the introduction of other gardening programs, such as Ground Force, 1997-2002. Growing flowers was by no means a new concept in Britain. People had kept window boxes and bought cut flowers from markets to display in their homes for hundreds of years before they began maintaining larger gardens. From the late 19th century, however, owning a garden was not just about growing plants, they became places of leisure. Croquet and lawn tennis became popular and children used gardens as a space to play and invent numerous games. Around the same time, novelty items began to appear in gardens, for instance, 
the garden gnome and, later, pink flamingos. Today, garden centers are full of traditional and contemporary sculptures specifically designed to stand on lawns or hide in flowerbeds. Since the mid-20th century, children's playthings, swings, slides, climbing frames, have dominated lawns. Unfortunately, due to the modernization of towns and cities, not everyone has the opportunity to own a private garden. Fortunately, the lack of a garden does not prevent people from enjoying flowers and plants. Cut flowers have been available in London since Covent Garden Market opened in the 1630s. As modes of transport improved, different types of flowers became available at the market, for instance, daffodils from Lincolnshire, violets from Devon and, by the 1900s, carnations from southern France. Today, florists sell flowers from all over the world, particularly from Holland. In Britain, the changing seasons control which plants can be grown throughout the year, however, thanks to air travel, it is possible to order whatever cut flowers we desire, whenever we want. The majority of roses sold in Britain, for instance, come from Kenya. William Bly by Alexander Huey 1814 The Tomb of Captain Bly. Statistically, Britain has the least native flora than any country in Europe other than Ireland. From as early as the 16th century, plant hunters were sent to other countries to discover foreign plants and introduce them to Britain. Snowdrops and tulips were found in the Ottoman Empire and sunflowers arrived from Central America. Later, in the 19th century, explorers found rhododendrons in Wisteria and the Himalayas. Some of these expeditions were funded by aristocrats who wished to show off exotic plants in their gardens. Other trips were arranged for scientific reasons by the government. The plants that were gathered were brought to the botanical gardens at Kew where botanists could learn about the foreign flora and their potential economic and medical properties. Buried in the gardens of the church-slash-museum is Vice Admiral William Bly, 1754-1817, who captained the Royal Navy vessel HMS Bounty in 1789. His main task was to transplant the breadfruit from Tahiti to the British colonies in the West Indies as cheap but nutritious food for slaves. The breadfruit had been found when Captain James Cook, 1728-79 had sailed to Tahiti in 1769. Sir Joseph Banks, 1743-1820, the founder of the Botanic Gardens at Kew, who travelled with Cook was intrigued by this miracle food that bore fruit for seven months of the year. The fruit could also be easily stored and dried so that it was available for the remaining five months. At 22 years of age, Bly accompanied Cook on his final voyage where Cook, unfortunately, was killed on the island of Hawaii. Due to his experience at sea, Bly was chosen by Banks to captain HMS Bounty and transplant the breadfruit tree. During a five-month stay in Tahiti, Bly and two gardeners collected a thousand cuttings of the breadfruit, however, they never managed to transport them to the West Indies. Led by Fletcher Christian, 1764-93, some of the Bounty's crew decided to take over the ship. Unable to regain control of the mutineers, Bly and his loyal sailors rode over 4,000 miles to safety. Fortunately, Bly was able to return to Tahiti in 1793 aboard HMS Providence. This time, the ship reached Jamaica with 1,281 breadfruit plants. Today, the plants grow abundantly across the Caribbean. Bly went on to serve in the Napoleonic Wars before becoming the governor of New South Wales, Australia in 1806. Unfortunately, due to his sympathetic attitude towards the poor settlers, he was overthrown by the rich colonists. Bly returned to England where he eventually died at home in Bond Street, London in 1817. He was buried in a tomb at St. Mary's, which had been built for his wife Betsy. Initially, it was only the aristocracy that could afford to purchase the plants that explorers like Cook and Bly collected, however, in the 18th century, nurseries were set up where the general public could purchase the seeds to sow in their private gardens. These nurseries were the precursor to today's garden centers. 
Unlike the nurseries, garden centers can assist with landscaping as well as maintaining plants. Garden design is believed to be one of the most challenging forms of design. The designer must understand the properties of plants and soils as well as be able to imagine aesthetically pleasing spaces. Garden designers are not only responsible for the positioning of plants but also walls, paths and features, such as ponds and fountains. Plant of the Eden Project, 1998 Garden design can be studied as a profession, although many people save money by designing their family gardens. Public gardens, however, need the attention of professionals to make them safe as well as attractive for visitors. As an example, the museum displays a copy of Dominic Cole's, Bidot 1957, designed for the Eden Project. Greater than tools make the garden. We, the gardeners, may dream and scheme to our heart's content, but with no more than our bare hands we can't proceed far down the garden path with our imagined garden plan. We can't even begin to make the path. Greater than Dash Christopher Thacker, Garden Historian. To design and maintain a garden properly, the gardener needs to have access to the right tools. Today, standard tools can be found in all good garden centers and DIY shops, however, in the 17th century, tools were made specifically for individual gardeners. For years, most gardeners relied on hand tools, however, techniques began to change in the 19th century. In 1830, Edwin Budding invented the first lawnmower. Up until then, grass was cut using scythes or even sheep, but Budding, inspired by a factory machine for cutting cloth, developed a way to make maintaining lawns much easier. The introduction of new materials allowed for cheaper and quicker production of garden tools. In the 1960s, the plastic flower pot became popular and plastic was also used to make watering cans. The development of rubber hoses provided an alternative, faster way of watering the garden. Putting the current war on plastic to one side, these inventions made gardening accessible for everyone, regardless of skill. The museum contains examples of tools throughout the years, examples of seeds, gardening magazines and a wealth of information. Located at various points around the displays are information boards about several people who have contributed to the world of gardening. Humphrey Repton, 1752-1818 Humphrey Repton was the last great English landscape gardener of the 18th century. Born in Bury St. Edmunds, Repton was destined for a life as a merchant until he visited the Netherlands where a wealthy Dutch family introduced him to the joys of drawing and gardening. Repton attempted a career as a textile merchant, however, he was unsuccessful and moved to a modest cottage near Romford, Essex. With no secure income to support his wife and four children, 36-year-old Repton turned to garden landscaping. Repton's first paid commission was Cadden Park in Norwich in 1788. Despite having no experience, he became an overnight sensation. Repton began producing red books full of watercolors and text to help his clients visualize his proposed designs. The Garden Museum displays one of these books and a brief video showing Repton's design process. Sadly, Repton was involved in a carriage accident which left him unable to walk for the final seven years of his life. Fortunately, Repton's work has secured his name in the history of gardening. Three roads in Romford and Gidea Park, near where he lived in Hare Road, now Main Road, have been named after him, Repton Avenue, Repton Gardens, and Repton Drive. Over the length of his career, Repton produced designs for over 70 grounds of country houses in Britain. These include Crewe Hall, Dagnam Park, Hyams Park, Kenwood House, the Royal Pavilion, Russell Square in Bloomsbury, Stubbers in North Ockendon, Wanstead Park, Worley Woods, Wembley Park, and Woburn Abbey. Jane Austen, 1775-1817, referenced Humphrey Repton in her novel Mansfield Park. William Robinson, 1838-1935. William Robinson was an Irish practical gardener who popularized the English cottage garden.
He began gardening at an early age when he became the garden boy for the Marquess of Waterford at Curragmore, County Waterford. Following this, he worked for an Irish baronet in Ballykilcavon, County Laois, where he was in charge of several large greenhouses. Possibly due to an argument as rumours suggest, Robinson fled to England in 1861 where he found work at the Botanical Gardens of Regent's Park. Robinson specialised in native British wildflowers and was sponsored by Charles Darwin, 1809-82, David Moore, 1808-79 and James Veach, 1792-1863, to become a Fellow of the Linnean Society, dedicated to natural history. Robinson left Regent's Park in 1866 to write for the Gardener's Chronicle and the Times, and in 1871 he established the gardening journal, The Garden. Contributors to The Garden included John Ruskin, 1819-1900, William Morris, 1834-96 and Gertrude Jekyll. Through his magazines and subsequent books, Robinson challenged the traditions of gardening, introducing new ideas, such as the herbaceous border containing a mixture of plants, and the wild garden where sections were allowed to grow naturally without too much interference from the gardener. His concept of the English flower garden was influenced by simple cottage gardens once favored by landscape artists. Greater than the gardener must follow the true artist, however modestly, in his respect for things as they are, in delight in natural form and beauty of flower and tree, if we are to be free from barren geometry, and if our gardens are ever to be true pictures, and as the artist's work is to see for us and preserve in pictures some of the beauty of landscape, tree, or flower, so the gardener should be to keep for us as far as may be, in the fullness of their natural beauty the living things themselves. Greater than Dash William Robinson, The English Flower Garden, 1883. Gertrude Jekyll, 1843-1932. Portrait of Jekyll by William Nicholson. Gertrude Jekyll was one of the most influential gardeners of the 20th century. Born in Mayfair, London, Jekyll studied as an artist and became associated with the arts and crafts movement before moving on to designing interiors. In her 40s, she progressed to designing gardens. Jekyll's gardens were influenced by the artistic training she had received. She was particularly inspired by J. M. W. Turner, 1775-1851, Impressionism and the Use of Color. As well as designing over 400 gardens in Britain, Jekyll developed a color theory, which she published in Color Schemes for the Flower Garden and other works. Edwin Lutyens, 1869-1944, an English architect, partnered with Jekyll who designed the landscapes for his impressive buildings. Ludgins designed Munstead Wood, the house where Jekyll lived in Surrey. Jekyll, of course, created the garden. Unfortunately, many of Jekyll's gardens are now lost or destroyed, however, her fame lives on. In 1897, Jekyll won the Victoria Medal of Honor, which was followed by the Veatch Memorial Medal and George Robert White Medal of Honor in 1929. Robert Louis Stevenson, 1894, a friend of the Jekyll family, used their surname in his famous novella Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1886. Ellen Ann Wilmot, 1858-1934. Greater than my plants and my gardens come before anything in life for me, and all my time is given up to working in one garden or another, and when it is too dark to see the plants themselves, I read or write about them. In 1892, Ellen Ann Wilmot inherited Worley Place at Great Worley in Essex on the death of her father Frederick Wilmot. The 33 acres of land had become the family home when they moved there in 1875. When she was 21, Wilmot was permitted by her father to plant an alpine garden, which included a gorge and rockery. Wilmot employed 104 male gardeners, insisting that women would be a disaster in the border, who helped her to grow more than 100,000 different plant species. Recognized for her efforts, Wilmot was elected to the Royal Horticultural Society's Narcissus Committee and received the Victoria Medal of Honor, 
a medal that only two women ever receive, the other being Gertrude Jekyll. Seratostigma Wilmotinum. Expeditions to China and the Middle East were financed by Wilmot to bring exotic species to Worley Place. Wilmot spent so much money on Worley that she died penniless. Worley Place was abandoned to the wild, although it is now managed by the Essex Wildlife Trust. Ellen Ann Wilmot is remembered by over 60 species of flowers, which have either been named after her or Worley Place. Examples include Rosa Willotti, Ceratostigma wilmotinum and a species of sea holly nicknamed Miss Wilmot's Ghost. Graham Stewart Thomas, 1909-2003 Graham Stewart Thomas Greater than whether you look upon gardening as a hobby, a science or an art, the fundamental point returns again and again, that we garden because of the beauty of plants. Greater than Dash Graham Stewart Thomas, The Art of Planting, 1984 Graham Stewart Thomas declared he would become a gardener at the age of six when he was given a fuchsia as a gift. At 17, he joined the Cambridge University Botanic Garden and then the Six Hills Nursery in Stevenage in 1930. The following year, he became the foreman at the nursery T. Hilling & Company, Hillings, in Surrey. Graham Thomas Rose Whilst working at Hillings, Thomas met Gertrude Jekyll who became his mentor. She taught him how to combine plants into color patterns and inspired him to collect samples of roses. This led to several books, Old Shrub Roses, 1955, Shrub Roses of Today, 1962, and Climbing Roses Old and New, 1965. Thomas began working with the National Trust at Hitkit Manor in Gloucestershire in 1948. He later worked at Sissinghurst Castle, Kent, Mount Stewart, Northern Ireland, Modestfont Abbey, Hampshire, and Sizinket House, Gloucestershire. Graham Stewart Thomas is remembered for his many books and a species of honeysuckle and rose have been named in his honor. John Tradiscant the Elder, 1570-1638 John Tradiscant the Elder was an English gardener and collector. Not much is known about his early life other than he began his career as head gardener to Robert Cecil, 1563-1612, first Earl of Salisbury at Hatfield House, Hertfordshire. Following this, Tradiscant worked for George Villiers, 1592-1628, 1st Duke of Buckingham, remodeling his gardens at New Hall in Essex. Later, in 1630, Tradiscant was made the keeper of His Majesty's gardens, vines, and silkworms by King Charles I, 1649. Tradiscant traveled to other countries and continents in search of seeds and bulbs. Places he visited include Arctic Russia, 1618, the Levant, 1620, the Low Countries, 1610 and 1624, and France, 1624. As well as looking for plants, Tradiscant assembled a collection of curiosities of natural history, that he displayed in a large house known as the Ark, which later opened as a museum, the first ever museum, in fact, to the public, the Museum Tradiscantinum. The Ark. The curiosities from the Ark are now housed in the Garden Museum, although they have no link to gardening. Tradiscant intended the collection to be a representation of the nature, art, religions and ways of life of all nations on earth. Items include an alabaster figurine of St. Fiacra, the patron saint of gardening, Roman coins, medallions, reindeer antlers, a cast of a dodo head, shells, and the vertebrae from the spine of a North Atlantic whale. St. Mary at Lambeth A church has been on the same spot on the south bank of the Thames since before the Norman conquest. The crypt of the present building and some of the burials date back over 950 years. The church, whilst not the original, is a combination of medieval and Victorian architecture and it is the oldest structure in the London borough of Lambeth. A stone tower, dating to 1377 although repaired in the 19th century, is still intact and accessible to visitors. 
131 stairs lead up to the roof of the tower, which provides an impressive view of London. The churchyard was a place of burial until it was closed in 1854. An estimated 26,000 burials took place, although many were interred without tombs or monuments. As well as the Tradescant and Captain Bly, notable names in the churchyard include Anne Boleyn's mother Elizabeth, Nay Howard, circa 1480-1538, Thomas Howard, 2nd Duke of Norfolk, 1443-1524, Richard Bancroft, overseer of the production of the King James Bible, 1544-1610, and Frederick Cornwallis, Archbishop of Canterbury, 1713-83. The Garden Museum is open Monday to Sunday, 1030-1700 hours. Tickets are £10, although some concessions are available. The entrance fee includes both the museum and the tower. A tower-only ticket is available for £3. More information is available on their website, www.gardenmuseum.org.uk.